Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Okay. Should we do this? Yeah, let's, let's do, do it. it. Yeah. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias here today with Sarah Cliff and Dara Lind, and we are going to talk about childcare. This subject has been been sort of in the in the news a, a little bit. We had a, an op-ed last week uh, from uh, Katha Pollitt, I believe, saying, how come everyone's talking about healthcare for all and college for all, but not daycare for all? Um, and then Elizabeth Warren Came Lo and out. behold, came out with like it's it's really head start for all from what yeah, I so can let's, gather. So why don't we talk a little bit about kind of what this universe looks like? Because I've been sure. talking to Warren staff about her childcare plan. I've been looking at an interesting plan from the People's Policy Project, the uh, the Family Fun Pack, which is is not a fast food deal. It is a robust set of <laughs> of policies. Um, so you know, right now we're at this moment where. We have a workforce that doesn't really line up with um, the type of – we have childcare that doesn't really line up with the type of workforce we have. We've had women going back to work in increasing numbers since the 1970s and 1980s, creating this policy gap of what do you do with kids who are too young to go to school. And, you know, you – and what you're seeing from Warren, what you're seeing from the People's Policy Project – are essentially two different attempts at answering that question. Um, so what Warren rolled out, her plan is essentially a network of government-subsidized daycare centers and preschools that would be affordable to all Americans. So they would not be free, and I think that's a big distinction with the People's Policy Project proposal, but they would be tethered to the amount you you earn. So no American family would be expected to spend more than 7% of their earnings on childcare. Those who earn less than 200% of the poverty line would have free access to these daycare centers. And, you know, just to kind of paint a picture of how different that is from right now, you know, right now you have a childcare system that's plagued by, you know, I'd say like three key issues. One, the supply is very scarce and very expensive. It is often very hard to find childcare. I know in my own experience, you know, I signed my son up for childcare when I was four months pregnant and, you know, eight months before he was even going to set foot in the childcare center. My wife and I, we didn't know this. And so when she was eight months pregnant, we walked into a place and they, they laughed, they at, they laughed at us. Um, so it is it is scarce. It is expensive. You know, the average cost of childcare in the United States can range from nine to 36 percent to a family's income, depending on where they live. Um, you know, the typical family paying for childcare is paying about 10% of their income, but the challenge is really, really acute for single parents, for low-income families. Um, you know, there's some research finding that a minimum wage worker, they would need to work more weeks than exist in a year just to be able to afford childcare. So childcare is expensive, it is scarce. Most daycare is really low quality. The quality is not well regulated. It is hard to know if you're enrolling your kid in a high quality or low quality um, daycare center. There's, you know, a the flip side of that is that it is regulated. And so being able to kind of start your own bespoke yes. like home care systems isn't really a viable option. Yes, yes. Um, and I would suggest if anyone's interested in kind of these quality issues, there's an article Jonathan Cohen wrote for The New Republic in 2013 that I'll put in show notes that really just stuck in my mind. And, you know, the thing he writes there is, despite the fact that work and family life has changed profoundly in recent decades, we lack anything resembling an actual childcare system. The overall quality is wildly uneven, barely monitored, and at the lower end, it's Dickensian. And, you know, the last thing that's going on is you have childcare workers earning really low wages, that they earn on average an hourly wage of $10.82. That's about a third of what a public school teacher is earning. So, you know, the people who are working in daycare near certainly would not even be able to afford to send their kids to daycare care. So you have these three problems colliding with each other. And I kind of see the Warren plan as an attempt to tackle all three of those in one fell swoop. The idea is to make 
daycare a lot more available by putting a bunch of government money into it. So school districts, cities, states will take up that money. They will purchase locations. They will hire up teachers. They will get rid of the scarcity and they'll get rid of the expense by having these subsidies that make it a little more affordable for people to get daycare. Um, it, it tackles the quality issue by setting up some quality standards that would be national and tackles the worker pay issue by moving up the pay for daycare workers to be roughly equal to what local teachers are earning. So that's kind of the outline of the plan. I think and so. When, yeah. when she says setting quality standards, like what, like what, what does that mean? Yeah. So I think it's kind of helpful to think about Head Start here. So, you know, when that there would be certain things you would have to do in order to get this kind of money that, you know, student-to-teacher ratios, for example, might be one where, you know, the ideal recommended ratio would be no more than three infants to one teacher, but a lot of times you see daycare centers that just don't meet those staffing requirements. So that would be an example of, like, a quality regulation. Right. They would vary a lot by age, right? Because, you know, there's different things you want for a four-year-old than a four-month-old. Sure. Um, but the idea is in order to get this money, you're going to have to show you're providing some level of quality care. But so so these I would actually be... do have, like, like this, this is kind of the kind of national standards local control model, which, you know, Warren mm -hmm. is explicitly modeling on Head Start, like in, in some ways, like I said, this kind of is a like Head Start for all proposal. Like, does that work in the Head Start case? I think, you know, the, the conventional wisdom on Head Start evaluations has like swung back and forth, I think twice, as I recall, over the course of my career. And like now the pendulum is back toward more positive assessments of Head Start. Like, there was an early, like, before I was in journalism, very positive assessments of Head Start. And it was, like, creating huge boosts to kids' learning. And then there was about 10 years ago, like, a big wave of, like, negative assessments that, like, all this stuff faded out, right? And now there's these more positive assessments saying that, no, actually, like, Head Start had these non-cognitive benefits and the long-term evaluations of the kids who came through Head Start are really good. Um... So I don't know. So, but and all, but all of that is a focus on kids. It's not really like what strikes me about Warren's plan and the way that she's framing it is like it's not about you know kids are being ill served by this. It's parents are being ill served. I think by it's this. both, right? And I think this is one of like the key tensions in making policy around childcare is like when I write about healthcare, like usually the goal of most health policy healthcare policies is pretty clear. Like we want to provide people with affordable accessible health care. When you're dealing with child care, you know, you're dealing with what's best for a parent and what's best for a child. And often, you know, parents want what is best for their child, but often those two things are a bit in tension, right? Like, I think one thing that was helpful for me was to look at the Warren plan. So the Warren plan, you know, it is not free universal child care, but it's saying, like, if you want to use affordable child care, there will be a spot for your kid. If you look at the, you know, People's Policy Project, they envision something a little bit different and more sweeping where they would just have, you know, free universal child care, just like you get to take your kid to the public school and you don't pay anything. You take your kid to the public daycare center. And they would also envision some kind of allowance for parents who choose to stay home so that, you know, and so I think that's kind of interesting, like hits on this tension that you bring up, Dara. So that is a policy that would, you know, lead to more better access to childcare, but also probably not do much to increase labor force participation. If anything, it might depress labor force um, participation by having this kind of allowance out there for stay-at-home parents, whereas the Warren policy is one that I think near certainly would be would increase labor force participation. I think that's something that her campaign likes about it. But, you know, that means that there's a little bit less support. There's certainly less encouragement from the government for a parent to to stay home under her plan. I think in terms of, you know, the, the, the distinction, right, in some sense on a policy level, like what's good for the kids and what's good for the parents is maybe not, you know, so much intention because, like, you know, pe people want their kids to be in good centers. It does make a big difference, though, in terms of, like, how are you, like, like what is the political framing of this? And I also do think in terms of, like, when your, like, policy freight train starts running into problems, right? It's like, how do you start compromising down? And there's a conversation that's been happening in the United States for a while now, which is usually framed as preschool. And... Saying preschool is always the tell that you are really talking about children's cognitive development, mm. right? And the thing that's important, I think, is that when you have that 
kid's development preschool frame. When you start compromising down, what you do is you target more and more and more, right? Because your concern is for the worst off kids, like really pretty strictly, right? Like people don't worry that much about uh, middle class professionals' children's long-term cognitive development, right? So it's like if you if you can't have the like pre-K utopia, what you try to do is have like good pre-K for the poorest kids, right? Which if you're trying to have a child care affordability conversation, like that is very much a conversation to which middle class professionals are very relevant, right? And then things like as Sarah was talking about, the ability of middle-class professional women to fully participate in the economy becomes like a key concern, right? And there's like an economic growth case for that. There's a social justice case for that. And it becomes not necessarily as strictly about like the, the needs of the neediest, right? Particularly because the both the economic value of Better educated women is higher. And also those are the people who have more like worry about like the glass. You know, if you're working the minimum wage, right, there's like a, a limited set of like quality aspirations. Right. Like the opportunity cost of dropping out of the workforce to take care of children is l- like lower right. down the road. And it, Warren's plan is in its rhetoric, I think, is very much framed toward the like childcare conversation, right? And like equality in her own discourse about this. Like it talks about herself as a professional woman who wanted to go to law school and, you know, all the problems that she had there, right? And like that is very much like the frame that she has. The policy mechanics, it's not totally clear to me, live up to that because the 7% like sliding scale subsidy, like that is a, and with with the quality, right? Because like right now, low-income families are both incredibly cost burdened by their childcare. And also they are enrolling in cheap home-based places, right? And then like, you know, um, other people, like richer people are enrolled at these much more expensive places that lower income families can't afford. So Warren is proposing to say that she will subsidize you to go to a high quality center, but it's very tied to your income level. So in a practical sense, that should be a big economic boost to low-income families, possibly lead to better child development outcomes because they're in these higher-quality centers. But if you're talking about, I don't know, like young attorneys, right? Like, I, I, I'm not, I, I'm not entirely sure how much it actually does to address that kind of rhetorical pitch. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know that it necessarily does. And, you know, I think that's it's one of the interesting things, you know, in talking with Warren's campaign is about and I think this is a tension you see in a lot of Democratic policy is this idea of tethered to income versus universal program. And I think there's a lot there, there are strong cases on both on both sides of why you would want to structure your programs in certain ways. You know, if you look at you see this exact same debate in the Medicare for All versus Affordable Care Act debate, where, you know, the Affordable Care Act was mostly targeted at making health insurance affordable. It it had a pretty similar structure in that, you know, there they decided no one would have to spend more than 10 percent of their income on health care, and that's what they would use as the affordability standard. Whereas you look at Medicare for All, you know, there, I've always thought it's, you know, I've talked to Senator Sanders about this. It's interesting that, you know, for all his rallying against millionaires and billionaires, he really believes that healthcare is such a fundamental right that nobody should have to pay for it, not even the millionaires and the billionaires who are controlling so much wealth. And I think that's a key tension you're going to see come up a lot in this in this primary about, you know, why do you want to structure programs in certain different ways? And, you know, like we've talked, I think you've made this point here before, Matt, like if you want to model this off the public school system, you know, we would now find it very silly to say, like, well, if you want to send your kid to the local high school and you're higher income, you pay 7% of your so income. High schools should not cost there. more than 4% of any family's <laughs> exactly. like, Right. So if you're building it up from scratch, you'd be like, that's like a funny way to deal with it. You know, and I, one thing I'd be really curious you know, if you had a policy like Warren is like, what is the reaction from like the young attorney, like upper, like do people switch more to just having workers in their home, having nannies because they, you know, 
Because you could see costs of childcare going up with something like this, right? Like they would probably go up pretty significantly with the much higher salaries. You know, right now, elementary school teachers are earning about three times what daycare workers are earning. If you raise all those wages to match the school teachers, you're going to see daycare costs go up significantly. Yeah. So let's take a break because then I want to talk about that. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. I feel like this is a little bit different from the health conversation, right? Because nobody, everybody on the Democratic side of the healthcare conversation is saying that everybody should have health insurance, right? And the disagreement about whether we need a new program to give middle class people their health insurance is like about the pragmatics of it, right? It's it's based on the idea that like what we have here working at Vox Media is like good enough, right? And like if it ain't broke, you know, don't fix it kind of thing. To me, what's interesting about the childcare conversation, right, is that like if you like when I, when I read the op-ed that I started talking about, it was like, what about daycare for all, right? Like mm-hmm. that it, it read to me. It's like a like a middle class woman's creed de cœur, right? Like yeah. not right. It was saying that like the current situation is not good enough, right? Like that normal people uh, have, and in some ways, I, I would love to see somebody has to do like the model on this, right? But it's like if you give big subsidies to lower income people to enroll in higher quality child centers and mandate higher pay and offer a subsidy to more affluent people, but a lower subsidy, like, are you actually reducing the affordability of child care to, like, not to say that politics should revolve around the interests of, like, weeds hosts, <laughs> but... <laughs> But as a weeds host, I, there, there was an idea. I, I mentioned this when I was saying to Income Trap, like she had an idea in there about public school zoning that would be like re- really good for me. And now I look at this, I'm like, eh, this seems not. So that one good. thing I do want to make clear because I think it's an important, it's like a wonky but important structural thing, just so people understand how yes. the Warren proposal works. So these are not, you know, subsidies going out to individuals. It's not like you're getting an X dollar check, and that is the way the Affordable Care Act works. Oh. You know, you split your premium. With the government. That is important. um, The way this would work is essentially you have these subsidized child care centers. And, you know, when you go in to enroll your kid, they would ask how much you earn. And, you know, if you earn less than 200 percent of the poverty line, they'll say, great, you don't owe any tuition. Your kid enrolls here. If you're above the poverty, if you're above that threshold, 
um, you won't be paying more than 7% of your income. I don't think it was super clear if like someone at 300% is paying like a lower amount, but there, there'll be a cap on it. But it's not like we're providing, it is not providing subsidies to people enrolling their kids in daycare. It is creating a network of government subsidized preschools and daycare centers. So it's it is, like, it so is it's essentially like setting daycare tuition rates at a certain level. Yes. And saying, if you would like to enroll your kid here, this is how much it would cost. And the government is going to oversee the rates and the government is going to oversee the quality. It's like a little um, NHS for um, oh, for daycare. I see. Well, that is actually different. It is. So and I that, wanted to that make actually, that like, to see the, like, So I would draw what that my says objection. to me <laughs> is that there is a huge, huge benefit for middle class. Like the difference between a 7% cap and, you know, the average 10% that families are paying for childcare is not a huge deal. Yes. The difference between the 7% cap and the 35% that middle-class families in, like, oversubscribed urban areas are paying does seem like a huge deal. Yeah, I mean, the other thing that is interesting about this is that because it's, um like, health insurance 10% cap, right, it's like you only have one health insurance policy per person, but, like, obviously families have different numbers of children. So like to two families at a similar income level, right? Like if you have two kids under four, like you're going to get a much bigger. It's interesting because it like, also creates a lot of incentives not to space your kids very far apart because a 7% cap, it's not like 7% per kid. It's 7% per family. Oh, sure. yeah. So you really want to like condense your childcare yeah, so, costs, whereas now the incentives are to like spread out kids because right, childcare so, is so, so you're expensive. not double dipping. Yeah. Yes. It's um yeah, that's true. Anyway, someone someone is going to have to do like the charts on like family size planning for for all this. Oh, so, which is actually a good segue into like talking about the rest of the People's Policy Project proposal, mm-hmm. right? Because that is very explicitly being structured as, among other things, a transfer from smaller families to bigger families. Yes. Well, so in Two Income Trap, Elizabeth Warren um, has a kind of biting critique of. This structure of proposal, which she says it uh, sort of unfairly biases the system against uh, stay-at-home yeah. caregivers. So I, so I talked to her campaign about this. There's a passage in the two-income trap, which Matt did an excellent explainer on that he flagged me to, where she talks about the idea of subsidized um, child care. And one of the things she writes there, um, I'm quoting from a book now, It's she writes, daycare subsidies offer no help for families with a stay-at-home mother. In fact, such subsidies would make financial life more difficult for these families because they would create yet another comparative disadvantage for single-income families trying to compete in the marketplace. Every dollar spent to subsidize the price of daycare frees up a dollar for the two-income family to spend in the bidding wars for housing, tuition, and everything else that families are competing for. And so, you know, I talked to the Warren campaign about this passage yesterday, and, you know, what they are saying is they believe in that the senator's position is still consistent, that what they are doing is not offering, you know, these checks to individuals to go buy daycare. They are offering a benefit to all, you know, where if you want to enroll your kid in this free pre-K, if you want to be a stay-at-home parent who uses the daycare, you know, part-time and works part-time, this is something they are offering to every American family, and they are free to use it or not use it. You know, I think one of the interesting things, though, you know, in this passage, she also suggests, uh, you know, further on that daycare subsidies could be accompanied by offsetting support for single-income families, such as tax credits for state-owned parents, which is not part of the Warren plan right Right. now. It is part of the People's Policy Project plan. They suggest um, kind of basing the subsidy. It's kind of an interesting way to do it, where if if the required ratio is one caregiver to four kids at a daycare center, then a stay-at-home parent would get a quarter of the average salary because they're essentially doing a quarter of the child's care, which doesn't quite add up, but that's how, anyways, they would have this tax credit. You know, I asked Warren people about a policy like that. They said it's not in the plan now. They don't oppose it. They could see supporting it, but they don't think it is necessary to line up with where the senator has been on this historically. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in gotcha terms, whatever, um, I, I do think in in policy terms, I mean, for one thing, I think an advantage of her old position in favor of tax credits and the the people's policy effort to make it line up somehow is just that I don't think it is helpful to this project to lower the headline price of the child centers at the expense of turning it into a mommy wars topic. Like, I just, I, I can see the, like, budget nerd view that it's like, aha, this goes from, like, X illions to Y illions. But, like, who cares, right? Like, it's it's expensive one way or another, right? 
And one vision is like, here is the government to help every family with small children. And another is like, here is the government to tell a subset of traditionalist-minded families that like, we don't approve of your life choices. I think it's worth thinking about the feasibility of the universal center-based care in rural areas as well, right? There's much more stay-at-home parenting in rural America, uh, in part because there are more people with traditionalist-type values in rural areas, but also the logistics of operating childcare centers and dispensing children to them is much worse in low population density type areas. And I mean, again, it's not to say that like, just like, I mean, there are schools in rural areas. It is inconvenient to go to high school in a very low population density area. I've known people who like had to take boats to their high schools because they lived on offshore islands and there's like no good way to deal with that. Um, But, you know, I mean, again, like as a pragmatic option, particularly if you're raising the standards, right, like making the sort of home option available to people seems pretty sensible to me. I don't really see the the sort of I, I guess the alternative is that that the way Warren's done it, she has this case, right? She has this report, um Mark Zandi and, and Moody's did, you know, trying to show a sort of partial offset of the fiscal cost from greater labor force participation. I mean, it's an interesting question, like when you think of like those rural areas, because one thing you are doing is you're putting this like new well-paying job in the area. So you almost wonder if someone who is like staying home with a kid, maybe staying home with older kids who are in elementary school, sees this job at a new government-subsidized childcare center that's opening, it doesn't pay $15 an hour, it pays $45 an hour. Like, that's a lot more of an incentive to join the labor force. And, you know, so I kind of wonder if the, the people who are staying home, like, if that would be an alluring job option that hasn't really existed in this area, right. whereas, like, a $15 wage just isn't enough to get you d- into the workforce. No, that's true on the but, other side of it. Yes, right? yes. It's like creating work you right. could do. Right. Something that I, I wanted to to point out, uh, because I do think it's an interesting contrast between these proposals, is like the, the People's Policy Project proposal is not actually a tax credit for staying at home. It's a it's an allowance that they mm-hmm. want paid through the Social Security Administration, yes. which is actually a pretty consistent feature of that plan, that they're like in, we're in places where you would alternatively put a tax credit, they are putting a cash transfer program, um, which is kind of, you know, it's the People's Policy Project proposal as a whole is something of, it's not quite Green New Deal scope, but it's closer to that than like simply a child care for all proposal. It's a way to, you know, and, and they're very explicit about this, build in ideas about how the social safety net should work into this child proposal. Yes. So they're doing cash transfers instead of tax credits. They're doing universal sub- benefits instead of means-tested benefits. They're putting in Medicare for all up to age 26 because they're like, well, we really want Medicare for all. But if we can't do that, we should at least do Medicare up to 26 as a way to do child care. Right. Well, and so the, the technical reason for that, I mean, this is the kind of thing that I think— uh, people don't always think about, but is that in a tax credit structure, right, you get your money once a year, right? Whereas the way Social Security works, you get your money once a month, which is much closer to a paycheck and deals with the fact that, I don't know, people just... And the if, current you got, child if, tax- if I got paid my salary once a year, I'd be a mess. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> and the current child care tax credit is non-refundable. Right. So it's only going right. to actually help families down to a certain income point anyway. Right, 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 right. I don't know. You know, a lot of these campaign proposals, they end up landing in a kind of odd middle space, right? Where like you look at what um, what what Matt Brunick put out for people's policy and you're like, this is interesting. Like, obviously, Congress isn't going to do this. But like it is a fully fleshed out worldview of like how we should think about the relationship of the state the market and the family. Um, And I personally find it to be a compelling one, uh, but one could have also philosophical disagreements. I just wish they didn't call it a fun pack. It's kind of hard to take seriously. Uh, It is a very serious, interesting policy proposal. But anyway, it's a comprehensive philosophical vision, right? Members of Congress, like, don't have comprehensive philosophical visions. They have, like, bills that you're trying to go get passed. Uh, But when you get bills like this that are, like, they're 
it's very ambitious, like probably too ambitious to be enacted and like also not a fully fleshed out view of how the world should work exactly. And I'm just like always increasingly uncertain, like exactly what to what to make of it, because like, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, this is something we were talking about a little bit on, I guess, Tuesday, the days are blurring together, um, about, you know, the problems of having a legislative focus for early campaigns right right now. Like, the fact that Elizabeth Warren is a senator, Cory Booker is a senator, Kamala Harris is a senator, Kirsten Gillibrand is a senator. Like, there are bills that they can propose as senators that are also the planks of their presidential platform. Those are limited to, A, certain areas. It's it's going to privilege economic policy over foreign policy. You know, it's it, it means that we're probably not going to see immigration proposals for a while as much as that breaks my heart. Um, but... It also means that there's an interest in doing things that are bold because you know you're not actually going to get them passed as bills, but that don't have the kind of robust philosophical grounding that a full presidential platform would. Right. But then it's like, it's like you can look at this and try to say like, well, OK, what what are the philosophical questions in this space? Right. And what what do the proposals answer? Right. And so like one of them is, should there be a cross transfer from families with no children or few children to families with many children, right? And Warren is saying, yes, there should. The amount of subsidy you get is contingent on your income, but also contingent on your family size, right? And then there's like, should there be, you know, redistribution? And like, yes, because the financing mechanism for this is highly, highly progressive. Then there's a question of like, should there be a thumb on the scale for uh, mothers working. And Warren seems to be saying, yes, there should be. And that's the one thing where I think not like in the details, but in the philosophy, it it differs yeah. from, from the people's policy thing. And they, but then, you know, so Sarah did, did the reporting and maybe Warren's hedging a little bit about that. But like that, that's the sort of conceptual question. And I think it's like an un- here. So let's let's take a break and then we'll come back and talk about that question a little bit. OK, yeah. Support for the weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive. It kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com, code WEEDS, to save up to $400. Hydro.com, code WEEDS. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. So I think this is a really challenging question for candidates to navigate because it's kind of an unavoidable one, right? Like, I I think whatever policy you set up in this space is either going to encourage working or encourage staying home in some sort of 
way. It's going to tilt the playing field. Like the Warren policy is one that would probably encourage you to join the labor force in multiple ways. And, you know, the child care subsidies, the better paying jobs in child care, which has traditionally been a woman dominated industry. Like those are two pretty strong levers that would, you know, increase, you know, or are certainly not requiring anyone to work. And, you know, you could easily see some people taking advantage of this type of child care to work part time and, you know, take care of their kids part time. Whereas the People's Policy Project is like definitely tilting the incentives towards staying home. Now, again, you know, it's not, you know, we're not talking about like a full equal salary of a child care provider. But I think no matter how you set it up, like any time you're creating some kind of government subsidy program, some kind of allowance, you're going to be tilting the scales a little bit. And, you know, you're not telling anybody like, yes, you have to work, you're going to stay home, but but you are creating economic incentives that are going to, you know, tilt the playing field in favor of one or another of those things. And I think that is kind of a deep philosophical underpinning that candidates, you know, I think stepping back a little bit, one of the things that's interesting to me about this is Warren is really the first 2020 contender to come out with a big child care proposal. We haven't really seen one from Sanders. We have Gillibrand with like a paid leave proposal that deals with the first 12 weeks of life, but doesn't really go further than that. Because right, that's the, the other I philosophical think is, question here. Right, is like, the question is, is does this, this matter? Right. So that's like the, the top line one. And I think Warren is the first one to step out there and say like, yes, this is important. Like, yes, I would spend a lot of money on this. Um, yes, and I think a lot of legislative And time. a lot of legislative time thinking through this policy. You haven't seen other candidates do that. But when you dive into this, you have to think about those questions of like, do I want to incentivize labor force participation? Do I want to incentivize staying home? And these are these are things that can be fluid, too. I think one of the things that's really instructive when you look back at the history of welfare is that originally was thought of as a program to help moms stay home with their children, right. that we were going to give moms um, you know, the money they needed so they didn't have to go back to work so they could raise their kids. And over time, you know, it's fueled by a lot of racism and a lot of stereotypes of who was a welfare recipient. You see it flipping to, you know, in order to get those benefits, you're going to have to work. It became it flipped from a program encouraging people not to work to encouraging people to work. But I think that's like a key policy underpinning. That's kind of a philosophical debate. We haven't really seen the Democratic Party have quite yet. I right. mean, I think the other thing to point out here is like, A, when we talk about tilting the playing field, like the playing field is already tilted, right? Like it's it's more that there is an existing calculus and that calculus works out different ways for different people and it would be like cha- shifting that calculus, but it might not be shifting that calculus in the same direction for everyone. And this is where the kind of like the idea of the middle class you know, white woman as the default in who's getting like who is the beneficiary of these policies might get a little tricky because in practice, it's totally possible that this is going to have a different impact on the calculus of working class women in the calculus of like non-white women who, you know, are more likely to have like certain family structures. It's not super clear to me how the Democratic primary is set up right now to talk about how will this work for different groups of people and who is really interested in it? Like the other the other thing that really distinguishes the People's Policy Project proposal is that it has a very explicit political calculus built into it, which you don't see in actual bills, which is ironic because, sure. you know, the like Matt Brunig is not a legislator and Elizabeth Warren is. But the idea of, you know, w- we are appealing to this group because we're helping them is very much built into the People's Policy Project thing. That's not necessarily how politics works, but there isn't really an alternative vision in the Democratic primary right now of like, is the Wonk primary going to be the same thing as the coalition building primary? Are we going to be seeing Elizabeth Warren going through South Carolina, talking to, you know, like talking to black mothers about how her child care program will specifically help them? Or are we going to have the white paper primary here on the weeds? And then like Elizabeth Warren in South Carolina is going to be talking about totally different things. Right. Well, and so it, it should be said, right, if, if you're talking about uh, home or, or, or working, right, it's there's an interesting like sociological skew to um stay at home parenting mostly women obviously though not exclusively where it's more on the wealthiest families and also the poorest ones right and so there's importantly a large group of relatively low income uh latina uh 
stay-at-home mothers, right? That's a, a demographic group that has maybe a more traditionalist cultural background and also less, like, exciting uh, maybe career opportunities available to them in the United States. And something like the the, the letting you cash out a childcare benefit, right, is a big incentive for people like that to stay home, but probably not for better educated mothers whose market wages are going to still be much, much higher than like the potential value of that benefit, right? So it, it like it has a different impact on the cost benefit depending on where you are exactly in in life. And welfare reform was just the opposite, right? Like the point of welfare reform was to take the lowest income mothers and like give them like a swift kick in the butt so that instead of like lollygagging as a single mom or something, you'd also go work at CVS. It is a strain. Single parenting leaves a lot of time for lollygagging. But I mean, but like that, but that was the calculus, right? Like there came to be this like intense social concern that like low income unmarried women were not also doing enough paid labor market work, right? And you know, so like one question, this is in the childcare debate, also in the, the Bennett Brown child allowance concept, right? It's like, can we step away from like that terror? Right. Of like non-participation of less educated people right. who have but low so earnings. Kind of, can we restore and some agency to parents is right. another way to put it. But you that. kind of wonder if a program like this is vulnerable to those kind of critiques. Because like let's say we fast forward to like the Warren plan is passed. There's these government subsidized daycare centers. I, I could totally see in like a Republican primary, like, you know, candidates railing against low income moms who are just dropping their kids at the free daycare or doing whatever it is with their time. Like it almost feels vulnerable to some of the critiques of welfare in the way that it is like a big, important transfer to low income parents who right now, you know, are struggling to afford child care. They're the ones who are going to get Free childcare, right? Like, I mean, I, the, I'm not the, saying I, no, no. I yes. mean, the, this is this has been the traditional foundation of like fusionist politics in America, right? That like for reasons of religious traditionalism, there should be low taxes and low levels of social services, right? And that like the correct way to have a family is for there to be married couples who's in which like the man will be rich and the mom will take care of the kids. And that like if you have some kind of problem by not conforming to that model, like that's on you because any effort to help unmarried or low-income families inevitably starts to, like, seep away at the financial interests of affluent, one-worker, married-couple families. And it's it, it it's a tough nut to crack, right? And, like, one question politically is, like, do you, like, chip away at that model or do you, like, explode it with an atom bomb? So, I mean, I was actually thinking about this on the, like, tax benefit or tax credit versus cash transfer side, right? Because, uh, like, there's a snarky line in the People's Policy Project proposal about how, like, this is cash transfers instead of the tired, Demo- you know, center-left, blah, blah, blah model of tax credits. And it's like the reason that tax credits are a popular mechanism for policymaking is that they've traditionally been politically insulated because it's yes. much harder to get, you know, opponents of social services to oppose lowering people's taxes. That consensus does appear to be dissolving, though, right? Like, this was the whole 47 percent problem. When you have the party of historically low taxes saying, we want low taxes, but we want everyone paying into them, that gets rid of the political upside of tax credits as a model. So if you're a wonk and looking at it like, yeah, there's some, you know, this is not the ideal way to make policy, but we're willing to give up some policy efficacy for some political, you know, insulation and sustainability, and you don't have the political insulation and sustainability anymore, there's very little argument against running to the left because, yeah, it's like you're creating targets for the other party, but you're creating those targets anyway, so you might as well do what you want. Right. And nobody criticizes low-income families for, like, sending their kids to public school. Like, that seems to be an acceptable behavior. And, like, I wonder if you insulate a program like this, you know, and I think this is, yeah, this is a place where you go into discussions of, like, do you feel like it is important for the program to be totally paid for? And I think, I, I mean, this is like a surprising choice for me to see it so early in the primary to structure a program that like very much comes from like a legislating background that yep. says 
Childcare is expensive. You know, we want to use our dollars as most effectively as possible. So we want to target them to lowest income. Like, I feel like if Bernie Sanders were proposing this plan, it would look much more like the People's Policy Project, where it'd be universal childcare. You know, Warren is also proposing, fi- we haven't talked a little at all about the financing. She's proposing financing this with her wealth tax, which, you know, if you want to learn more about, Alvin Chang did a wonderful explainer on that I would highly recommend, but a wealth cha- a wealth tax that would more than pay for this. But the way they structure it, you know, they don't go fully universal. And that seems to leave the program, you know, more vulnerable to political attacks, like more vulnerable to being rolled back or changed in the future. Like you could see a future world if you look at the history of welfare, where, you know, some future administration says, well, we have this program, but if you're going to use the free government daycare, you're going to have to prove you're working. Like, we see that in Medicaid right now. Like, now there's work requirements rolling into Medicaid. It is not super hard for me to envision a future where we say, if you want to drop your kid off at daycare, like, you have to show us the paperwork that you are going to a job while the kid's at daycare. Or, like, we're going to cut the capital gains tax and we're going to pay for that by raising the percentage of income you pay as your pr- childcare tuition from 7% to 15%. Right. I mean, I- I wonder if a more realistic path forward for this kind of initiative doesn't continue to be at the state and local level. Like here in D.C., we, um, for some years now, have had pre-K for all four-year-olds. And then there has been an effort to roll out pre-K for three-year-olds. And because of budgetary considerations and capacity considerations like it is not currently available to all three-year-olds, but it is available to many three-year-olds. And at the cost of a slightly harder road to, like, achieving universal pre-K for three-year-olds, it is a very robust system. Like, it exists in the public schools. It's administered by the public school system. There is also charter school options, as exists in general in public schools. And it's not at all, like, an idealized framework. Like, nobody would propose, like, we should have a program where there's preschool for free for three-year-olds, but whether or not you can get it depends a little bit on, like, exactly. And they try to target it, not at the lower-income neighborhoods. You know, it's it's hard. But, like, doing anything in practice is hard. Like, it's easy to write on a piece of paper, like, these grants will create high-quality daycare centers. It's hard to create a high-quality daycare center. Um, And, you know, I mean, if you look at the story of public education in the United States, like, it comes as a state and municipal service that then the federal government later, like, comes in from behind with, like, extra money and some mandates and some expansion and and things like that. That's traditionally the way a lot of social benefits Mm -hmm. have worked. Yeah, Yeah, many things, but particularly something like this because it is so localized, right? Like you can – a centralized office can send checks to everybody. A centralized office can do a lot like with schools, but like like schools are local things, Mm -hmm. like regardless of what level of of government is at them. Like whether the daycare center exists and who enrolls in it is like like opening an amazing childcare center in Cincinnati, like that doesn't help you unless you live there. Uh, but I think so you hit on something I thought um Bryce Covert had a nice piece on in the New Republic about, you know, I think often with policy proposals like this, on the one hand, I, I don't want to get bogged down in the like, well, how do you actually do it? But the how do you actually do it is actually like a huge issue. You know, when I've talked to Warren's campaign, they say you could stand this up in about two years. Right. I think that's an incredibly optimistic timeline. And, you know, when I think of this, so I think a whole other issue we haven't talked about is like, how do you actually build this network of government subsidized child care centers? So we're talking about physically getting space. We're talking about getting the workers in there. A lot of the workers who work in child care now might not have the credentials they need to work in the quality child care of the future. So we're talking about a lot of retraining, finding the people who have Finding the people who are interested in working in these child care centers and have the right credentials is a very big task. I think one of the things that's so hard about an initiative like this, like the People's Policy Project, is that it's one that relies so much on human capital. Like it's not one, you know, I think like if you think of a lot of like stimulus type stuff, you know, you can't build teachers like out of concrete. Like you can't like just like buy more teachers. You need people to go through training. You need them to be interested in being in early childhood education. And that seems like a long time horizon. And I kind of wonder, like one thing I was trying to think through was like, well, if you wanted to 
roll this out slowly? Like, could you do it on a state by state? Could you like, and it just feels like a really hard task to figure out, okay, who gets it first? Like, I guess DC is struggling with this a little bit now with like free pre-K for a three-year-old. And I don't fully, you know, because my kid's a little younger, I've not delved into like how you get to be one of the pre-K three kids. But standing that up in two years, like, you know, I remember trying to set up a website to sell health insurance in four years, like didn't go great for healthcare.com. Gov. And this seems like a monumentally harder task because of the, you know, millions of humans needed to staff these child care centers. This is kind of where we get back to the question of like, why of should home care maybe be a bigger part of this? Like the the f- fact that there isn't a really good bridging mechanism between like taking care of your own kids at home and you know, becoming a ch- paid child care worker is definitely it's, it's not a problem that is like alien to the child care sector. Yes. Right. Like there are programs out there to encourage people who are interested in getting into home care to like go through the licensing process more easily so that they can do what they're doing, have some other people drop off their kids and be paid for it. But when you're talking about like setting something up in two years, it's much easier to do that from the perspective of, well, we have some stay-at-home mothers who are already trained in taking care of children. Maybe we should just compensate them for the labor they're already doing at a slightly larger scale rather than trying to train up all of these people who are, you know, being paid competitively, but like who by definition don't have experience in childcare because we're going to need a lot more childcare workers in two years. Seem you know it does seem like maybe the more moderate path here is the making home care a viable alternative one. Right, and so longtime Weeds fans will recall our white paper discussion of the Quebec uh, childcare oh initiative. Um, no, which was to exactly this point, right? So that yes. they Quebec started off with incredibly lofty uh, childcare aspirations, and they ran into implementation. And snags. And they wound up settling on, look, the important thing here is to have places for people to bring their kids. So they compromise down on the quality standards and let people use the subsidies for home-based care. Home-based care is basically like some person in the neighborhood is like, yeah, I'll watch three other people's kids um, uh, along with mine, right? And it's a very common low-end childcare arrangement. So they were like, said, yes, we will, we will open the subsidies up to that, and also to private uh, daycare providers, not just uh, our aspirational public utopia. Evaluations of this program have been like all over the map because it because it depends what you're looking at, right? But basically, the child development assessments are moderately negative, uh, but the like impact on low-income families' economics is positive, on women's labor force participation is positive. It achieved like Quebec's core goals were to um, grow the Quebec economy and to grow the population of Quebec, which is in a constant demographic war against English-speaking Canada. And it it worked, right, on both of those dimensions. Uh, to make it work, they had to compromise on the quality of the care services, um, which had some, some downsides. Uh, but it was like... The other thing that's different in, is in Canada, they have a less of veto point laden system. So if you have a really ambitious system and then you hit a snag 18 months into it, you can pass a new law and change things. I think, I mean, long time we will remember this. this when we talked about the Canadian immigration system. <laughs> right. I mean, the biggest problem, it seems to me, with the Affordable Care Act is just that. Yes. That, yeah. like, when they were writing it, I think they were thinking. If we have to change something down the road, we'll just change. Well, and I think so. I think that's a really interesting. So this Quebec story, like I actually see a lot of parallels to the Affordable Care Act there. And like, I think it's a good cautionary tale of some of the constraints around policymaking. So you actually see a very similar thing happen where under the Affordable Care Act, the Democrats, they envision everyone having access to really great health insurance and, you know, robust. It covers all the essential benefits. It covers pregnancy. It covers drugs. And then it turns out, like, that robust health insurance, it is really expensive. And a bunch of these low-quality health insurance plans are about to be canceled as these new standards come into effect. And you see total outcry from the people whose plans are about to be canceled. It's a huge, you know, political debacle for the White House. And the White House, you know, because they cannot go back and revise a lot easily, nor do they seem to really want to compromise on the quality standards, they essentially issue some executive action saying, okay, the, like— crappier plans that we think are bad, they can stay for an extra year because 
people like them, people are used to them, like, and we are dealing with this kind of political calamity. And I think it is a interesting cautionary tale in, you know, how it can be quite challenging in our system to get to the the place where you are trying to go and that you do see examples of trying to strive for higher qualities, trying to strive for like the type of childcare you feel like is going to lead to good outcomes, the type of healthcare you think is going to lead to good outcomes. But all that stuff costs money. And like right. asking people to pay more money, you know, that is um, not always so popular. And obviously this like Warren proposal insulates a little bit in that the childcare costs are going to be, um, you know, borne in part by the government. But you also kind of wonder about like, upper middle class families who could very likely see their child care costs rising as a result of this proposal, like flipping out when they get their new child care bill and seeing like some kind of debacle similar to like this ACA junk plans one. Yeah. And I just think it's it's so challenging when you don't have political consensus around goals and things, right? That like the current vision for how you will do things in the federal government is the stars will align so your party gets a good election and then you're going to like race toward the basket with like the biggest agenda you can possibly cram through the budget reconciliation process, kind of like dunk it and then like hide and hope to minimize the midterm backlash and maybe legislate again 20 years down the road. And I understand the series of structural factors that have led both parties to start making policy that way. But it's like what we've seen from 2009, 2010 was that Democrats made some policy that they were then, it was almost like too big of a ship that they launched and they couldn't quite like steer it right. And then Republicans just actually didn't get that much done in their brief window. And what they did, like, has all these weird expirations. And, like, they're hoping will create a disaster down the future that forces Democrats to agree to extend their tax bill. And it's really not uh, healthy. Like, I I hate becoming, like, an earnest uh, moderate who (laughs) pleads for bipartisanship. But, like, it is, like, it is a truly, like, catastrophic way to try to govern the country rather than to hope to do some things that will be popular and will let you win. So then like each year you like keep doing things and doing things and doing things and like adjust the course as you go to try to steer in a constructive direction. And like, I don't know, I don't know what to say. I mean, I really feel like, again, the cycle in which we have a gajillion and a half senators running for president is not the cycle in which these problems are going to get fixed. But I do kind of wonder, like, if we are in a world where senators proposing message bills is the alternative, is the the primary vehicle for rolling out your presidential policy agenda, like, what would it look like if, if Elizabeth Warren whipped this bill? What would it look like if she tried to get the, you know, help committee to hold hearings on it? Like if she used her floor time to like give a lot of five minute speeches about how good it is. Like if she were actually thinking about this as a legislator, not just a as like this is something she's doing nominally as a legislator, but really as a presidential candidate. Like I'm not saying we could actually get a They could actually get a bill passed, Mm -hmm. but it at least seems to, you know, keep it from getting stuck in this nowhere middle where it's not, you know, real, where it's overly ambitious to be passed as legislation, but not as, you know, comprehensive as you would want from an actual presidential policy. Right. Well, but this is what, you know, a, you know, a real question, right, is like, what do you want to try to put in a budget reconciliation bill? Right. And you know, like this is too boring. I, I mean, I saw Bernie Sanders on Chris Hayes' show last night simply like denying that any of this is in any way a relevant kind of issue. But like, I guess like Democratic congressional leadership should probably think about this because the presidential candidates don't want to address it. But like, given that Democrats don't seem to be interested in reforming filibuster, very optimistically, they would have a thin congressional majority. It's like, what could you actually do that way? Because you're obviously not going to have a bipartisan bill to, like, create a giant new social welfare program, like, pretty clearly. On the other hand, Wealth tax that is definitely reconciliation eligible, and it gives you like a lot of uh, room to spend money. And so then, like a good question is, okay, if you're going to have a wealth tax, 
that generates a lot of money. What are you going to spend that money on that like can be done through that mechanism? And saying, look, some of it, a big chunk of it needs to go to childcare and family policy stuff. Like that is an important commitment. Like that is not the way Barack Obama and Bill Clinton started off their initiatives. Both of them came in and they were like, we've got to put more money into healthcare. And the next Democratic administration is definitely going to try to put more money into healthcare, but like how much more, right? And what else What else gets a bite? Well, I guess we'll see. 2021. <laughs> Only time was up. Or these are questions that, you know, Democratic candidates could answer. Or they're questions one could discuss in the Weeds Facebook group. Yes. Oh, yes. Which no Democratic presidential candidates that we know of participate in. But Get in that Facebook lurking. group. Find Iowa residents and make them ask people in diners to give incredibly detailed process answers to these questions. We are through hearing about big ideas. We want to hear... We want to hear about the technocratic details of legislative. <laughs> that's that's what's going to galvanize people. Um, so yeah, so 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 thanks guys for listening. Thanks as always to our producer Jeffrey Geld, and the weeds will be back on Tuesday. <laughs> 